chapter 1. You guys ready for the book of James again this morning? We are in a book that is hitting us between the eyes, and I want to read to you two verses from James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is a statement in Scripture that sort of boils down the Christian life to one thing, visiting orphans and widows and keeping oneself unstained from the world. It's sort of a no-nonsense, boil it all down to one idea sort of statement. Reminded me of a time that I enjoyed on Friday. I went to Elmendor Air Force Base for the first time, was allowed to go on campus and and, uh, went in with a a military friend of mine, and we were able to watch Ravi Zacharias handle the problem of suffering and pain um, in a forum with several Christians and probably non-Christians on the base. It was a great time. He had a Q&A at the end of it. How many of you knew that Ravi was here and that he spoke at the governor's prayer breakfast yesterday morning? Yeah, he did, and it was actually televised, and I'm going to watch um, part of the taping of that um, later on. But it was a fantastic time because Ravi Zacharias is brilliant. He's just utterly brilliant. He's kind of in the same category as a C.S. Lewis or Francis Schaeffer, and he's been in the business of defending the faith and apologetics for 36 years. He's been able to speak in forums at Yale, at Harvard, Oxford, you know, all the Ivy League school settings, and he's packed the place out. Even on a weeknight, he was saying last year he was at Yale, and they said, look, we could not have packed this out, this area out on a weeknight, even if we had Tony Blair come to town. It it just, you know, why are they coming to hear you? And Rafi just humbly said, I think they just have a hunger for something that's missing in their life. And they have a hunger for God and they don't know it. And so he brilliantly handled the problem of pain through the book of Job. But what really was kind of put me in awe of him was when he was speaking about how he would go to different settings around the world and be sort of a defender of the faith and even a peacemaker. And he was in a setting as a dignitary and a representative of the U.S. in Israel, uh, invited there by the archbishop over that area. And it was, a, it was a gathering of Palestinian people and Israeli leaders, and they were talking about having peace with each other. And each religious leader gave, was given an opportunity to ask a question. And one of the leaders that was there, a Palestinian leader, was the person who originated the group called Hamas, the Islamic Resistance Movement. And so Ravi asked the question to that Hamas leader, what do you, what do you think and how do you feel about suicide bombing? Talk about a pin drop moment in the room. Ravi said, you know, all of a sudden I realized maybe I am not fitting in here asking a question like that because nobody really responded. He didn't really respond to the question. And Ravi knew that actually that leader had been affected by suicide bombing himself and his own family. And so it was a very sensitive moment, but it led into an opportunity for Ravi to give the gospel. 
And this Hamas leader was engaged with him. And Ravi said, listen, 4,000 years ago on that mountain over there, Abraham took his son. Let's not debate over which son it was, but took his beloved son in obedience up to that Mount Moriah and offered his son, raising the axe over him to kill him in obedience to his God. And do you know what happened at the point that the axe was raised? And the Masseter was kind of familiar with the story, but said, you know, okay, I'm not sure what God exactly did or said. And Ravi said, listen, as the axe was raised, God said, stop, for God has provided another sacrifice. And he said, 2,000 years ago, on this mountain over here called the Mount of the Skull, Golgotha, God did provide a sacrifice. He provided his own son to die in our place for our sins. At that moment, the archbishop kind of said, you know what, Ravi, I think it's time for us to sort of scoot out and leave. (laughs) And as Ravi stood up, that Hamas leader looked at him and said, that was from God. And then he trailed him down to the car and headed him off as he was getting into the car and hugged Ravi and kissed him on both cheeks and said, I hope that we can meet again someday. Because Ravi actually made the point, he said, listen, unless we as nations embrace this son of God, then we're going to be giving our sons and daughters on the battlefield in death, in war for years to come. So talk about a statesman, talk about a dignitary that's giving the gospel around the world. That struck me, but what struck me even more acutely was another statement he made that reminded me of how James is boiling everything down the purity of life, what really matters. And that was when someone tearfully asked the question about applying the gospel to your life and how you live the Christian life. And Ravi just all of a sudden began to minister to him personally, where the guy's breaking down in tears. And he was transparently saying that the one area that he regrets most in his life, Ravi saying the first 10 years of his ministry was one where he was flying all around the world giving the gospel and to the neglect of ministering to his own children. He said, once they grow up, you can never get those years back again. Talk about a prioritizing moment for me. I'm sitting here going, okay, this is pure and undefiled religion. Ministering to the most needy people that are given to me in my life. And I think that it holds true in the spiritual realm. We get busy about a lot of things, a lot of good things, and a lot of even Christian things. And sometimes to the neglect of our own primary needs that are in front of us where we should be ministering to people who need us. Perhaps orphans and perhaps widows, perhaps family members, perhaps people in our community. People that are brought into our path that need us most of all. And James is trying to prioritize this early church when he says this statement. It's not all-encompassing for all of what Christianity is, but it represents the heart of Christianity, putting your heart out there for needy people. And James has already talked about the trials that the church is going through. They're under a tremendous amount of pressure, difficulty. They've been 
confronted about blaming God when the church was sinning in its own heart for the trials they were going undergoing. And then he confronted them about how God is good and they shouldn't doubt the goodness of God because God has saved them. And now he's talking about how they need to be hearers of the word of God and they need to be receptive to the truth. They need to listen and not only listen to the Bible, but to apply it in their daily lives, to be doers of the word in their own hearts to be doers of the word in the church community, that's James 2, and then to be doers of the word in the rest of the community around them, orphans and widows and many other examples. James, for the rest of the book, is going to be talking about being a doer of the word of God. But as we're looking at this kind of doing, let me just summarize it this way. Religion that is real is always three things. It's always spiritual, It's always sacrificial, and it is always separate from the world. Our religion is the only true religion. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. We have the religion of grace, and everyone else has the religion of works. We are motivated by grace, and we want to give to people who are needy in need of grace. This is the heart of God, and this is the point of these Verses. Well, the first point, religion is always spiritual. It's always a matter of the heart. James brings us into this with saying, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives himself, this person's religion is worthless. There's a lot of people who are religious, a lot of people who are putting stock in a religion of works, even in the name of Christ. They're going to church, they're being a part of things, they're singing songs, they're listening to the word of God, but their heart is not transformed and their heart isn't genuinely in it. What exposes that kind of religion is one thing, the super strong organ in our bodies, the most incredibly powerful organ in our bodies spiritually, and that is the tongue That is the tongue. It exposes us for who we really are. Primarily, religion in the Bible is used as a word negatively. It's kind of a pejorative term. It's a negative term. It's it's where Paul in, in Acts 25 and 26, when he's defending himself before Felix and Agrippa, is saying, hey, I was part of a religion. Uh, He uses that twice there in the book of Acts. I was part of a religion. When he was in Acts 17 at Areopagus and he was talking to the different people who were very religious, he says, I perceive that you are religious. That's sort of a negative way to look at religion. It's used only one time, as I see in Scripture, it's used only one time positively, and that's in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Everywhere else is sort of a, you know, a, a series of do's and don'ts where you're trying to earn your way into heaven. But here in verse 27, he's saying pure and undefiled religion looks like this. It's not wrong to gather for worship. It's not wrong to, to come in ceremony, to, to hear the word of God in this way and to be part of something. But religion is based on our relationship with the Lord, right? That's the only true Religion. 
And we're all warned by the Pharisees. We all think about how the Pharisees were putting on airs and they had deceived themselves. They were the ones who had deceived their own hearts because they thought that they were the purest because they were obeying the law and even adding to the Bible to justify their existence. And they were condemning the very Savior who was God right in front of them. Well, Jesus actually condemned them for their religiosity. If you turn to Matthew 23, you see this. If you want to remember where the woes to the Pharisees are, it's Matthew twenty-two twenty-three. woe to the Pharisee. And you see this in verse 25. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgences. In verse 27, he calls them whitewashed tombs that outwardly appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones. And then the indictment found a few pages back in Matthew 15 is a quote from Isaiah 29 where Jesus is condemning their hearts. Verse 8, Matthew 15, verse 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then verse 11. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. All of that talk, the idea of praising God with your mouth, speaking a word of encouragement with your lips, but your heart is completely empty. is that dangerous picture of the hypocrite in the church or in religion in general, right? It's very dangerous to live that way. It's the idea of headless worship. It's the idea that your heart really isn't engaged in God at all, and you have deceived yourself. The word deception is used with different terms throughout the book of James. So far, verse 16, verse 22, and now down in verse 26, deception, where we can lie to ourselves and we think that we're okay, but really our religion is vain. Matthew 15, 9, in vain do they worship me. That word vain is actually the same word that James uses in verse 26, where he says religion is worthless. It's vain. What James wasn't saying is that people weren't trying to be religious. Vanity or worthlessness or emptiness doesn't mean there isn't some substance there. There are people doing all kinds of things, but it's just pointless. It's just pointless. It's religion that that is missing the point of worshiping God. It's not spiritual. It's like the woman at the well. She said, look, our people, she was speaking of Samaritan people to Jesus. And she said, our people, Jesus, worship on this mountain. The Jews, they worship on this mountain. And Jesus sort of cuts to the chase and says, listen, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship is a matter of the heart, in other words. And he began to convict her of the different sins that she was participating in, how she was all into immorality. And he's saying, listen, worship is a matter of the heart. It's where God generates worship in your life. That's where it has to begin. That's where it has to begin. That's what true religion is all about. I'm reading a book right now, by the way. It's one that I can't really fully recommend yet. I haven't read it all the way through. But it's about a 
person who was 19 at the time and transferred to my alma mater, Liberty University, from Brown University up in Rhode Island, Ivy League school. He's very brilliant, English literature major. He wanted a writing project. And so the way that he was going to um, fulfill his writing project was actually to transfer in, airdrop into a Christian school incognito undercover. Don't recommend doing this, but he was kind of coming from the far left extreme, raised by liberal parents, wanting to airdrop into a far right Republican fundamentalistic environment. It fascinated him, and he wanted to see if there was anything real or substantive there. So somehow he feigned his testimony on the computer application, bada boom, bada bing, he's in. So there he is. And he's talking about dorm life and chapel life and all of his experiences and orientation. And it's bringing a lot of things back to me because I experienced those things as a student and as a spiritual leader on the campus, a student leader. And so these student leaders are engaging him and interacting with him. I'm kind of rooting for those students as they see talks about his testimony. And he's saying that there are people who are sitting down on his bunk bed and asking him about his spiritual life, which is interesting. But What was exposed in the book so far is how a lot of times people uh, sort of will move into categories of legalism and not even know that they're doing that. In other words, the way that this student was evaluated as to how he's doing spiritually was based on how many times he was doing devotions a week. Right? Have you ever heard that? You ever been tempted to think that way in your own life? He said, listen, you know, there is this thing called devotions. I've never heard of it, but it means that you spent 30 minutes in the Word of God that morning, reading and praying. And if you do it just three times a week, then people pray for you that you'll get up to five or six or seven. But if you say, hey, I've been doing it every, week, every day of the week, then they leave you alone. They say, oh, well, that is wonderful. You must be growing in the Lord. And so it's sort of this sad and humorous commentary as you read it. But what's been interesting is also to hear how he's been affected by genuine believers there. And he says, listen, it sure seems like they have something that I don't have that I've been looking for. And I've even watched him speaking. He's even watched people in chapel services and this sort of beatific um, facial expression where they are really worshiping God. And he says, you know, they're just doing something that I'm interested in. And he says the longer he's there, the more he's warming up to the ideas around the campus. So it's kind of an interesting thing. But religion is something that is not Christianity in its sum and substance. It's, it's pointless. And James is even taking it one level deeper saying, listen, if you think that you are religious and your tongue is smoking you out and showing you for who you really are, then... You dare not be deceived and duped for that. It's worthless. You know, at some level, Pharisees who were fully, you know, known to not be saved, they were under the curse of God, those people were parading their religiosity with their tongue all the time. They wanted an audience when they would pray and they would talk themselves up. And James is definitely condemning that kind of fakery. But as believers, we also are convicted by this, aren't we? We see the things that come out of our mouths and we think of the verses about how out of the mouth proceed the things which fill up in the heart. We see that and it it strikes our conscience. It hurts us because we know that we long to be right with the Lord. I think that's why in James um, 3, he talks in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways 
And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. In one sense, James is saying, listen, you can't bridle your tongue completely. Because no one will ever be a perfect man. In another sense, I think James is saying, listen, if you can, by God's grace, obey the Lord and be a little bit more quiet and silent and slow to speak, all of your Christian life will be advanced. Just bridling the tongue. What a terrible thing our tongue can be, right? All through James, James is sort of beating uh, the church up about its tongue. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. He's talking about people who are blaming God for their sin. He's talking about in James 2, 3, and 4, how we say one thing, showing partiality to the rich person. Hey, verse 3, you sit here in the good place, but to the poor man, you stand over there or, or sit down under my feet. You know, we say all kinds of things that become problems. We're superficial. You know, it's, it's interesting. The tongue is, is such a problem in our lives. Look at 3.9, chapter 3.9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. In James 4, come now, verse 13, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. We become presumptuous. We condemn people. We hurt people. We, we, we curse God in ways and, and we don't want to. And we look at our hearts and we say, Lord, give us grace with our speech. And that's what James is talking about. I was looking online at how many words people say. There's kind of this debate that women speak more words than men do generally. Have you ever heard that debate? It's kind of been sort of um, taken on where someone said, look, really, it's about 16 to 18,000 words a day that people speak. It's a 54-page book a day is what people typically say. And that's also multiplied today with social networking, you would assume. Now, now we're all writers, right? Nobody wrote until email, you know, unless you were gifted as a writer. But now we all write and we all use that platform. But you have to be very careful with what you say and with what you write. Because it's revealing what's going on in our hearts. We have to be careful. Even the fool, when he is silent, is seen as wise. Proverbs 17, 28 says... Well, back to James 1. We don't want to be those who are deceiving ourselves, whose religion is worthless. We want our religion to be real because it's spiritual. And then secondly, it's sacrificial. We want a religion that is sacrificial. And all true religion is sacrificial. It is, it is the living sacrifice of Romans 12, 1 and 2. We present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Pure and undefiled. The word pure is catharsis. It's the idea of of being without spot, without blemish. It's the symbol and picture of the Old Testament lamb offering sacrifice. You didn't give the beat up lamb. You didn't give the broken legged lamb on the altar. You gave the, the best lamb that you had, the best offering, the first fruits of your labor. You gave to the Lord as a symbol of a full offering to him on a heart level. Jesus himself in 1 Peter 1 is called the pure and spotless lamb that's given. 
you know, we who've been touched by the gospel, why do we want to give? Why would you want to give pure and undefiled religion? One reason. Because you realize that if you boil it all down, you and I were orphans and widows spiritually who were rescued by the Father. Right? The reason that you want to give to anybody, and all believers truly do want to give something to somebody, is because you know that you are loved by grace. And an orphan and a widow is a picture of grace. And it's always been that way. Even in the Old Testament law, Exodus chapter 22, you may turn back there, Exodus 22. It was in the law of the Old Testament with the children of Israel. They were coming through their... 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and God wanted to make sure that they were set up in the promised land in a way that they were going to obey the word of God and take care of sojourners, people that are passing through, that are in need, they're travelers and they need sanctuary. And then you've got orphans, people who are without a father, and then you've got widows, they're needy. And in Exodus 22, look at this warning, verse 22. It says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God was very serious about taking care of those who are in need. And I think the reason for that is, is that each child in need, each widow, each orphan is a picture of the need for grace. If you minister to someone who cannot thank you or give you something back, that is a picture of grace and grace alone, right? That's what God cares about. Deeply, It's all through the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 14 talks about a tithe every three years that as you, as a farmer or a person who's a shareholder, you're giving a percentage to the sojourner, to the orphan, to the widow. Every seven years, you're releasing the captives under Old Testament law. It's the year of Jubilee where, where you don't hold the debt against anyone anymore because we have to picture grace And God was very serious that these laws were protected because Psalm 30, 68, 5 says, God is the father of the fatherless. He cares about the orphan. Jeremiah 7, same thing. In Matthew 18, in Matthew 18, I think that this is a a unique connection to this whole theme. In Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about children and the faith of children and how they represent They represent what it looks like to genuinely believe because a child won't think himself religious like he's earning his way into God's favor. He'll just throw himself into the lap of Jesus. Well, he, Jesus kind of builds off of this idea and says that for baby Christians in verse 6 of chapter 18, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Why is there such a severe warning atmosphere on this idea? It's because God cares about people who open themselves up and say, I have no other recourse but you. And as believers, we're to be those who are grace-filled. You know, I think of 
people who care for the handicapped and people who get into swimming pools with handicapped children and they'll get beat up by the kids and, you know, they'll spit on, spit on you and do all kinds of things. And you're just of a mindset if you're in that situation where you're just giving and you, you don't care if they're giving back to you. You're just giving to them because you're grace-filled. And that's the disposition of all Christians. That's what we should be like. We should be grace-filled, ministering to the helpless, those who are pictures of grace. And I, I don't think that James is talking here about the idea that we're commanded to sponsor a child with a monthly gift. I think that's a great vehicle. I think it's a great ministry to get to know a child that way and, and to connect with people overseas. But it's far deeper than just that. He's saying in verse 27 that it's to visit orphans and widows. The word visit there is episkopos. It means to oversee with intimate care. We're supposed to be God's hands and feet, his eyes, his, his touch on people's lives. And there are people spiritually who are orphans and there are people who are spiritually widows that we need to minister to and be hands and feet toward and care for people in that way. Thinking of 1 Timothy 5, 8, that those who don't take care of their own family are worse than an unbeliever. Have you heard that verse before? It's the idea that we should be thinking about our own families and needs that we have that come up, even with situations where maybe there's tension or maybe there's a broken relationship. You give anyway because that is pure and undefiled religion. In the context of 1 Timothy 5, Paul is warning the church and Timothy to not put a widow who is who has not reached age of 60 on the widow's list, the, the widow indeed, the one who is affirmed as a widow, because women in the church could have been abusing that benevolence and asking for care, and then they're going to turn away from that and ultimately get married anyway. And so there's a sensitivity here to not being abused in that situation, but always it's documented that God wants there to be skillful, heads-up, engaged ministry, benevolent ministry to people who are in need, but not done in an unwise fashion. It's very important. Real religion. You know, Psalm 51, David said, you know, you, you don't require a burnt offering here with this. Burnt offering, that's not what you require. It's a broken and contrite heart. That's what you will not despise. That was David's confession, where he was saying, create me a clean heart. That was pure and undefiled religion, where he's throwing himself on the mercy of God. In Matthew 25, you have the sheep goats judgment as well, where you have... Um, the angels and God separating believers from unbelievers in the end time. The believers are on the right, the, the goats are on the left, and the believers are those who ministered to those who were hungry, who were hurt, who were sick, who were in prison. And Jesus and the believers are saying, when did I minister to you in that way? And Jesus said, look, if you've done it under the least of these, you've done it unto me. And the goats, they said, look, when did we, the unbelievers, when did we not minister to you? Well, there, was, there were these hungry people. There were these sick people. There were these people who were in prison. And had you ministered to them, you would have been ministering to me. That's the point of Matthew 25, the pure and undefiled religion where we see needs and we meet the needs. And we do it as worship because 
Real religion is spiritual, and it is sacrificial. It's what our heart breaks for. As a young believer, I didn't really understand this at all. I'm, I think I'm just now beginning to get a taste of what it looks like to give and to give to people and care for people and to go out of my way. I'm still a work in progress. But as a young believer, I remember as a new, uh, newlywed, Judy and I, we didn't have kids yet, and we uh, sort of what, you know, we're part of that newlywed phase where you've got, you know, a little bit of money, but not so much. And so we went out to dinner in Southern California to, I think, a place called Gladstones. And we had steak. And I mean, it was just this incredible time. And we're walking along. And I, I don't know if we were dating or married yet, but we were just in, you know, in this sort of early love phase and just, you know, gliding along in Southern California. And this person comes up, you know, we're minding our own business. This person comes up and begins to beg for the food that we have after the dinner. And I mean, it's all, you know, tinfoiled up in a swan, you know, I'm going to eat this thing later on. This person says, can I have your, your food? And I just said, uh, you know, no, no, I'm, this, this is ours and just kind of moved on. And so then I took the food and we, we sort of put our, our stuff, our jackets and things in the trunk, and I put my food in the trunk and shut the door. Well, a week later, my car began to stink. You know, it stinketh. It was just, you know, really, really bad, bad news. And I looked in the trunk, and all of a sudden I saw in all of the fabric and carpet of the back of the trunk, it was maggot-filled and just, you know, sort of this forever picture of me not giving my food to the person that asked me for it, you know? It's like God was saying, listen, I'm sending you a message as you clean your car for the next hour or two to try to get dead and live maggots out from the different, you know, carpet fabric in your trunk. Religion that's real, it's sacrificial. And it's also, lastly, it's separate. It's separate. What do I mean by that? Look at the text. It says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction... And to keep oneself unstained from the world. In one sense, I guess the word unstained or being unstained from the world could mean the idea of a separation from the sinfulness of this world. Please don't hear me to say that I think separation means we all need to be fundamentalists. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not talking about hair length or how you dress or any of that. It's not the statement of, you know, I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. First hour, I said, you know, maybe there are some people who do. I don't know. But, but listen, here's the deal. He is talking, I think, in one sense. First John 2 says we need to be separate from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life as we minister because we could minister to people who are in some down-and-out situations. And as you build relationships and build friendships with people, you could be tempted to be drawn into their own sin. I know that when I was in... California. I was a security guard for one summer at a place called California Institute of the Arts. That was a really, really um, interesting uh, place of immorality and all kinds of you know sin that was going on and, and even displayed in art there. But because the security guard captain or leader was from Grace Community Church down there and he knew I was going to, to there for seminary, he gave me a job, and so I forever had a relationship with this guy and was able to bring students from Master's College back over to minister the gospel to them. But you had to do it sign up kind of with, with blinders on. You couldn't really look at the walls and look at the things that were going on. But out of that ministry, there's a couple that still is a baptized uh, married couple now who's part of a church down in Southern California and still believers out of that. But that's 
perhaps part of being unstained by the world as you minister, but I think that it's, it's more connected to the kind of religion that you're ministering through. And let me explain that. It says, visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The word and isn't really in there. It's visiting orphans and widows, keeping yourself unstained from the world. The word world here could very much mean other world religions. It's like Colossians chapter 2 where Paul is saying, listen, don't get involved in the religion. And it uses, he uses the word religion there of do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch. Don't get involved in the false teaching of asceticism, which is doing without. And the idea that the more that you go you know, without eating and touching and doing, the more spiritual you are. Don't get, don't get stained by that. Don't get drawn into that false religion. There are all kinds of false religions, which are really false motivations for doing things that you think are for God. There's the whole religion of legalism, right? Where you you feel legally obligated to visit an orphan and a widow. And that's not the point of this at all. That's not the gospel. There's really only two religions in the world, right? The religion of grace, which is Christ alone, the true religion. And all the other religions, which are the religion of works. Or the religion of guilt. You ever experienced that? Those are worldly religions and worldly influences that come into the church. There was the, the whole issue of modernism that, that led up to the Renaissance where people began to become secular humanists and put their, their mind and their achievement and their abilities above God, right? Modernism. And that turned into pragmatism in the church where people began to say, look, you know, if I can figure something out, a method to make something work, to create a spiritual effect, then no matter what I do, that'll justify what I'm doing. Pragmatism. And then there's postmodernism where people say, look, who cares about the laws? It's all about relationship. And so I'm going to just dumb doctrine down and put that aside and just know Jesus. And that's my postmodern religion. Where instead, the Bible calls us to have a religion that's grace and truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. It's an exclusive, narrow road. It's the only pure and undefiled religion because it's the only one based on grace. Everybody else is trying to earn something. Everybody else is trying to affect something. Everybody else is trying to achieve something in their own strength. And God calls you to serve in the strength that God supplies. 1 Peter 4. By the gospel. Why would you want to visit an orphan and a widow? Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to visit somebody in the hospital? Why would you want to visit somebody in prison? Why would you want to give somebody something when there's going to be no return? Grace. They're a picture of grace where they need grace. And you're a picture of how you were given grace. You were that orphan and widow. And so then you go and you extend grace to them. That's what it means to be unstained by grace the world. Let's apply it. Let's look at a few points. First of all, here's a spiritual checkup for us. This is how to win friends and influence people is have this kind of conversation around coffee. Here we go. All right. Number one, ask yourself or someone else about your speech. Talk about comfortable coffee time. Ask them about how you speak. Say, do I talk too much about myself? You want to get that transparent with somebody. It's a good way to sort of understand how do people perceive your spirituality, your tongue, 
Do I talk too much? Am I all about me? Do I talk to others to build up or tear down? Is that what's going on in my heart? Or do I talk about the Lord? It's just a good way to diagnose. Am I bridling my tongue? Am I praising God with my lips? And is my heart far from the Lord at the same time? Don't want it to be that way. You want pure and undefiled religion. You want a religion that's substantive spiritually that has a point. Number two, ask yourself or someone else about people's needs. About needs. Ask people what they need. Are you overlooking your family needs? Think about that. You're overlooking needs in your church. This is where you'll find the orphan and widow opportunity. See, are you overlooking the needs in your community? And then number three, ask yourself or someone else if you serve by guilt or by grace. Remember, being unstained by the world. You don't want a worldly, guilt-driven religion. And you don't want a Christian version of that. That could be one of the most important questions that you could ever ask somebody about your spiritual life. Do you think I'm guilt-driven or am I a person who sees that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, was buried, rose again, and because of that gift, that launches me into service? Do people see that in your life? Do you see that in your life? Are you guilt-driven or are you grace-driven? I hope that we're always motivated by grace. This is kind of our lead-in to the Lord's table. Let's bow our heads right now and examine our hearts as we approach the Lord's table. The men, if you would come forward at this time. I'm going to read from Titus chapter 3. It's one of the most potently gospel passages in the New Testament. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Verse 5 says, he saved us. This is the centerpiece. God saved us. We didn't save ourselves. Why? Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior...